Welcome to Practical Access. I'm Lisa Deeker. And I'm Rebecca Hines. And Lisa, today we get to talk to our friend and colleague, Dr. Trey Vasquez. And I'm looking forward to a spirited discussion about behavior. <laughs> Buenvenidos. Thanks for having me. <laughs> well, yeah. And Trey, you know, you've, you're not only a great friend and a colleague, but you're also a certified behavior analyst. You have a doctorate in special ed. You've taught. Uh, you run our Tony Jennings Exceptional Education Institute. Did I miss anything? I don't know. No, um, you hit the highlights. Uh, I've been playing around in the field for the last uh, 17 years and uh, enjoying my time with you guys. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Well, we're excited. Yeah, well, our topic today's behavior. Becky, what do you want to ask? I'm going to let you kick it off. Well, I have a lot of questions. I have a lot of questions. We don't get to ask, pro like, professional questions. We're always in meetings and stuff. So, um, you know, Trey and I share an interest in behavior. We, we possibly come about, at it at, from two different angles. Um, I know no Trey's <laughs> background is... Um, behaviorism specifically working with kids with ASD and mine is working with kids with emotional and behavioral disorders. And so it's, it's always interesting to me because um, while I appreciate a behavioral approach and I certainly understand its importance, I know from my background that it doesn't work for all kids and so I do draw from some of the cognitive, some of the psychodynamic. And so I'm just interested, Trey, in kind of talking a little bit about what, what that actual behaviorism is and why it's so important for kids with ASD specifically. Well, that's a pretty nice question to start the, the day off with. And yeah, you're right. We have multiple lenses out in the field regarding how we handle problem behavior or behavioral in general. Uh, I come from a long line of applied behavior analysts. And so my background is very traditional in the world of behavior analysis. There's over a hundred years of research uh, backing up its efficacious outcomes for a variety of populations. Um, when I look at behavior in general, um, I come with it with that lens at first, but as I've worked with colleagues like you, Rebecca, and Lisa, and Matt, I've uh, gained the value of diversity of opinions, and it's also nice to see how we can look at the environment in different ways. And I would say, you know, for anyone listening who's interested in behavior analysis or behavior in general, it really is looking at not only the environmental context of what's going on, but also who are the agents involved? You know, who are the teachers or the parents, the caregivers and or the actual student or person that we're really focusing on and, and what are their needs and why is the current environment causing an issue with regards to their problem behavior? Because at the end of the day, I would say 99% of the behavior that we see out there is communication of some sort. And we're looking to figure out how can we as humans communicate better? You know, that's what I, that's, at the end of the day, that's the same thing that I saw is that the behavior, no matter what it was, kids were trying to tell me something. And so um, when we think about um, ABA in particular, and we think about kids with autism, you know, I use that term, you know, cognitive and psychodynamic and some of these other approaches. But I know when it comes to kids who may not be as abstract in their thinking, some of those approaches actually don't work. 
um, because this, the student may not be able to pull in all of the, the pieces. So Trey, can you give us an, an example or an idea of like just the very thinnest premise of, of behavior analysis? Uh, really, I mean, at its roots, I would say the founders like Watson and Skinner would say that it's truly an analysis of the environmental context. And if someone is engaging in a particular response, it's for a reason. It's either to gain access to reinforcement, which is basically access to some preferred stimuli of some sort, or it's to get away from the environment. Uh, there's something that's going on that's uh, disconcerting to the individual and they're trying in their best way to get away from it. And so um, our, you know, our uh, analysis techniques would allow us to observe that environment, measure what's going on, and then make some educated responses based on what we're seeing and then test whether or not our solutions are valid or not. I would say that the unique part of behavior analysis is that relationship to database decisions. So we rely heavily on single case design and we rely heavily on our direct observation techniques to see how that environment's coming to play and what the participants um, doing. But I would say there are behaviors out there that are really, really difficult for us to measure. For example, internal behavior, thoughts. Like I have a student who is engaging in self-doubting talks, you know, so that maybe they're depressed. A behavior analyst is going to be really hard pressed to measure internal dialogue unless they ask someone for, you know, a running dialogue at the same time uh, because we can't see it. But a lot of times we evoke other responses at the same time. So uh, some of my experiences have been in hospital settings. Some of them have been in school settings. And what's a unique feature across all of them is that it's this failure to communicate and figure out how to gain what they need in order to make that moment something that is a personal growth moment. And uh, so, for example, I've had kids who will engage in, um, you know, pill swallowing because it's not that they like the drugs. It's because they like the attention they were getting from the emergency people when they were coming to rescue them. And they thought that was great. And so we got to figure out a better way for him to request attention rather than swallowing a whole bunch of pills. So, I mean, that's just one of a myriad of examples that we could give. So, you know, one of the things it kind of leads to this question, and I know you're a prolific grant writer, reader, and really you've kind of been on the cutting edge thinking about, you know, where brain science and learning sciences is going to take us. And I know you're kind of an expert in, in the area or emerging expert in the area of executive functioning. And I know that has close analysis. Can you kind of share with, with parents and teachers what you know, or in a summary, what is executive functioning and maybe like what it, what it does in the relation to behavior? So, yeah, I mean, this is a fun topic for me because I geek, I get to geek out on it. Uh, <laughs> I remember practical access. But, yeah, I mean, for me, <laughs> For the for the layman, really, executive function is a fancy term for organization and working memory. And what do those two things mean? Well, uh, the working memory part is really important in that 
whenever you're in front of a classroom, for example, a, a teacher will give you a set of instructions and maybe your phone also vibrates with a text. Well, what do you do? You look down at your phone, read your best friend's message, look up and totally forget what you were supposed to do with the teacher instructions. So that's working memory. And then there's organization and pre-planning and all that kind of falls afterwards. Like how are you going to get a set of um, prerequisite skills and what's your plan of action to essentially take each one of those items off the list in the given amount of time that the teacher or the parent gives you. And so there's a lot of emerging research uh, there's a lot of existing research in that arena, especially in the psychology literature. Um, and we're finding out that uh, executive function really spans every single disability category there is. And it tends to be one of the biggest areas where a lot of people with people with and without disabilities struggle. And so if there's a way for us to develop interventions, if there are ways for us to help support executive function, then we make life easier for everyone, presumably. Uh, the interesting current information that we have out there is that we can train executive function skills really well and we can get short-term gains. But the, the biggest problem right now is that long-term gain. And that's where all of the cutting edge research is happening. Is like, how do we get someone who you know, we can teach you how to use a planner. We can teach you how to minimize the distractions in your life. And that way you can focus more on the content and the, and what you're supposed to be doing. But after you get out of that context where we give you all that support, can you then take that and run with it and generalize across multiple subjects, across home setting, school setting, et cetera. So I'm a parent and I'm a teacher. So I'll let you take both of those on. So as a parent, what's two to three things in my home I should do to help my young adult or our child? So if you want to pick age um, and in the classroom with executive function, what are some real practical things I could be doing at home or as a teacher in the classroom with a room full, as you said, of kids with executive functioning needs? What, what are my go-tos to start with? So... I would, and this is where Becky is going to be really appreciative. Uh, I would lean on some of my more cognitive friends to start looking at some other uh, scaffolds such as universal design for learning. So what does that mean? That means providing multiple means of representation, action, expression, and some concrete examples would be if I have a student that I know has an issue with their scheduling and pre-planning events, teach them how to use their phone. And every phone has a calendar option. Go in the calendar, put in the time of the class. For my kids right now, I have kids that are in virtual school. So I have the time of the class or the subject area, the Zoom link that they're supposed to go to, and the um, emergency login info if I need to have it just in case. And so both my sons can immediately select that button and go straight to Zoom. But then if I have a question as a parent, I can go in there and say, oh, look, here's the emergency number for this teacher. Yay for me, I don't have to think and search for it, it's already there. And so helping with uh, content organization, that would be a real big help for a lot of people. Uh, with regards to distractions, there are some really simple things that you can do. Uh, a lot of people have notifications on their phones and on their computers. Turn those off. I know it's nice to get a ping that you got an email or a text, 
but that is the distraction that gets you off of what you're supposed to be doing. And so if you take away those notifications, you have an immediate openness of schedule to finish your work. And then after you're done, you can open those applications up and see what's going on the rest of the day. Trust me, they're going to be okay to wait. And, and about in the classroom, what about the classroom teacher? What should they be doing for? Yeah, same thing with the classroom. I would have multiple schedules posted around. So it's really about some redundancy put in place, um, depending on the age group of the students, you know, secondary students uh, should have more executive function skills, but they will often don't. And so having in those schedules, um, if they're running a virtual classroom versus a face-to-face -face classroom, there are different options with regards to text-to-speech, uh, speech-to-text. Uh, you know, there's a lot of accessibility things out there that teachers can use to make their content uh, more accessible, not only to individual disabilities, but all individuals. Thanks, Trey. And, you know, you, you, you mentioned a, a, a several things there that I, I know we all are very like-minded in, um, specifically uh, technology. And so uh, everyone on this podcast has, has played around and tried to stay um, up with the field in different tech tools. So I wondered, you mentioned some really practical, simple ones, setting reminders, and then also not setting, you know, notifications. Um, and I do agree, those are really great things for, for teachers to consider in the classroom as well. But what are some other specific um, technology tools, programs, etc. As someone who is um, really well educated in this area, what would you say would be the thing to look at that's either here right now or up and coming in the area of behavior, executive function, because there is a lot of overlap in those two areas. Yeah, um, if you're running an online class, which a lot of teachers are doing right now, uh, I would take advantage of a program called Pizza, and it's linked to almost every LMS out there. And what it is, is it's kind of like a message Q&A board, and it's completely accessible, which is the first my first criterion for any recommendation. But two, I know a lot of teachers and professors get frustrated quickly about answering the same question over and over and over. So this, um, this site basically, or this tool allows you to compile and allows students to answer questions for everyone as well. And as a teacher or professor, you can verify, yes, that is a good response and you don't have to do it again. Uh, some professors I know have been taking common questions that they get an email, taking that email, putting it into this application, and then saying, here's an answer if everyone has a similar question. And so it's kind of user and crowdfunded, or not funded, but crowdsourced <laughs> of information. And that's a really great thing. And the other thing is you can link it directly to all of your course um, goals and objectives and due dates. So it's got a built-in inner interweave with the LMS, which allows you, if you have an executive function issue, to say, oh, look, I have, an I have this assignment due in a day. I better get cracking on that. And if I have general questions associated with it, there's a running list of questions that have already been asked. I don't have to waste anyone's time. I can read it and find out what's going on. That's a good example. And um, for anyone who doesn't know, LMS stands for Learning Management System. Yeah, sorry, I will um, throw jargon left and right. Yeah, he's a jargony <laughs> kind of guy. He's a jargon It's kind a prerequisite of guy. for being a behavior analyst. Yeah, absolutely. And Trey, you know, 
speaking of behavior again, when we think about the whole executive function and the planning, um, I think that, that one of the things that we would both agree, if we can get kids to start learning to self-manage in one arena, it definitely starts to carry over into the other. I know in my work with kids with significant behaviors, when I could get them to settle and focus and plan and feel like they had control of something themselves, it definitely helped some of the behaviors to fall away. And that's when we get, you know, the ones that are still there, we can go and analyze more formally. But I think that that's probably right. a, pretty good, a pretty good start. So, you know, my last question, Trey, is kind of along those same lines, and you have a, I'm going to do a shameless plug since this is a UCF, uh, University of Central Florida uh, program, uh, you have a BCBA clinic where you're training folks, and I was kind of curious from your years of experience, um, it's a twofold question, what's the most common behavior you see parents worried about in the clinic in the work, and what's the most common mistake we as parents or teachers make uh, with behavior that you've seen in your work over the years. And I see you smiling, so I know there's lots going through that head. <laughs> uh, yes. So I would say, depending on the age group, so let me, I guess, give a preface about the clinic and the program first. So uh, we have a, a board certified, uh, verified course sequence. So student undergrad or graduate students can come in, take those courses, and as part of that sequence, they have to have X number of hours of service and supervised service to the field. And so that's how they get their chops. Uh, so in the clinic, we have, we're pretty small. We only have three clinic rooms and we have a rotation of about uh, 20 parent uh, student dyads. And our goal there is not to train everything. It's really just to get a foundation of, of information for both parents, students, and, the, and our uh, university students. And then we also have a lot of partners that work in private practice and in hospitals where they get a more broad range of skills. And so it's important to get that zero to adult experience because everyone can benefit. Um, so most common behavior. Uh, I would say at the young age, the most common behaviors are either uh, learning how to communicate, and so we get a lot of tantrums, we get a lot of non-compliant behavior, uh, we get a lot of um, food refusal. So those kind of are probably our top three for the young kids. For the uh, a bit older kids, I would say, you know, middle school on up, it's again, some of the non-compliance, um, but some of that's, you know, teenagers. And then, um, Really, I would say it starts morphing into the more executive function type things where we're trying to help them be successful in their schools. Uh, I would say the mistake that I most often see, and I fall into this category as well, even as a behavior analyst, is realizing that whenever you're messing with the environment, you are a big part of it. And so oftentimes, I'll give you a concrete example. We got a kid who's in class and they just know how to push your buttons, right? That teacher will say, please go to the office or go into the hall. Now, what just happened there was the kid probably won, got what they wanted. They got out of the class because they were bored out of their mind or something was going on that they weren't happy about. So they get a win, they get a pass, they get to get out and miss class. But in reality, the teacher 
also gets reinforced. And so the teacher now no longer has to deal with this obnoxious person that's causing a disruption and they get to continue doing what they were doing. They feel relieved because they have a respite of time. And I think when people get into that cycle of not realizing, oh, I'm a big part of this, they just perpetuate. And that's why I have teachers who come to me and say, oh, well, reinforcement doesn't work. I'm like, yeah, it does. You're, you're reinforcing yourself all day and you're loving it, but he's not. <laughs> and so that is where I think the mistakes happen. And once you realize, oh, I am a big part of this solution, then you can start fixing what's going on. That's really well stated. Thank you, Trey, for sharing that. And definitely looking, sometimes we have to change our own behavior to help change someone else's. Trey, what's one final simple tip for the simplest one you can think of for parents or teachers um, when it comes to helping to change a behavior? Don't always take it personal. I think that's, you know, it's really hard, especially if you're messing with your own children and you're having a difficult time with your own children. There's a lot of emotion uh, in addition to the behavior that's going on. And sometimes just taking a quick breath and not responding is the most beneficial thing you can do for everyone, but also sometimes the hardest thing to do. Well said. Well, thank you so much, Trey, for joining us and being such a great colleague on Practical Access. If you have questions, you can uh, post them on our Facebook site or send us a tweet at Access Practical. Thank you again for joining us, Appreciate Trey. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks.